Hey! Sorry to startle you. I'm Andy Kindler. Welcome to showbizmonkeys.com. Around this town, I'm alright. Around this town, I'm alright. I mean, no consequence when you're playing with the fire. No one would know I'm 4D. Two, three. I've just been looking at Wikipedia, so that could have been entered. Oh, things could be entered wrong. You know, they definitely are. Especially when you're 64. Uh-oh. Tomorrow I'll be 64. Oh, really? Yeah. Happy, happy birthday. Yeah, easy for you to say, young person with your whole <laughs> life ahead of you. Right? Eh, who knows? Who knows? I like that. Who knows? That's good. Um, first of all, I love the album you just put out, uh, hence the humor. Oh, I'm so happy about it. That makes me very happy. Yeah. I mean, I thought I'd get the plug in right away, but just. I'm glad you did because I, I would, I will forget. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to beg the question that you say at the top of the album. Why, why suddenly an album now? Why? Mm. Cause you've been at this since the eighties. So. Hey, don't say that. People don't have to hear that part of it. Well, I mean, you did say your age. Oh, Jesus Christ. We can edit this. We can edit this all out. Oh, I want it all edited out. Actually, I want to edit it in, and then I want uh, you to turn it into a special documentary about older <laughs> Asian comedians and how are they still in touch? Yeah. Do they still know their name? I mean, are they all talking about Shecky Green? Yeah. I forgot your question, though. Oh, uh, it, what was my question? Now you got me. Uh, it was, why an album now? Why after? Okay, I'll tell you why. Because I suffer. I mean, some people say they don't suffer from it, but I do suffer from OCD. So for years, I, uh, and then I wasn't in therapy until age 59, which was very, very uh, old for a comedian to get into therapy. But uh, I had a problem of finishing projects. I didn't finish things, uh, so many things, and I didn't realize that there was medication for it. And so I taped this album in 2013. I'd never had an album before. The only thing I'd released before that was a, a DVD that my uh, wife, Susan Malgen directed and uh, we released it ourselves. And so I, I had always wanted to make an album because I was really, you know, I love Mitch, uh, Mitch Hedberg's albums. And mm-hmm. I love the way you can tell the progression you know, from the first one that has the bass line and then he does it, you know, so it's like, I just felt like the intimacy of not being able to see the comedian. Here's what happened. Mm-hmm. I thought if I, if I eliminated the camera part of it, they'd think I was Mitch Hedberg. Didn't work. <laughs> Nobody thinks I'm Mitch. No, so that's why I wanted to create an intimate thing. So I did it in 2013 at the UCB on Franklin in, in Hollywood. And then it just started to get to one of these things like, it's a whole long story, but it took years and years. And then I didn't, I wanted to release it as an album physically. Yeah, yeah. And then COVID hit, it was like, I, I hit, had the realization, like, just put it out there and forget about the physical album. Because now the last thing I want is after a show to be meeting people with their Jeremy CDs and yeah. their, uh, you know, their masks, giving me diseases. Shaking hands and... No, never going to happen. People will only see me through a plexiglass of some kind. The rest of my, this is as close as we're ever going to get. Oh, yeah. I'm sure you're happy about it. So uh, 
it just came out. And so because of the horrible quarantine, the world, the one bright spot of the horrible quarantine was the world being able to digitally download my album. Uh, I'll, I'll say this because I didn't know it's been here since 2013. It's not dated in any way. <laughs> okay, uh, yeah. The thing is, is that I had included jokes because I knew that I knew that my my track record wasn't so good with uh with with getting things out there. So I uh, included future jokes. I said, uh, "Hey, where'd you get that shirt with Bitcoin?" <laughs> oh, I wonder how President Boehner's doing. Well, see, some of the predictions didn't work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I knew in 2013 that it would be delayed. Yeah, I, I'm very happy. I'm, you know, all kidding aside, which a comedian should never say. Uh, I'm very proud of it because I really, I took the mic out of the stand, fell, the mic fell. And then from then on, I was, it really was in the, well, it was over two nights too. People, they don't believe it. Yeah, yeah. But uh, it just was exactly how I, I feel about myself today. So I'm very proud of it. And I'm very proud that I did it before I passed. <laughs> Are you still there? I can barely see you. Come closer. Tell my kids, I'm sorry I didn't have them. The delay is so great on the feed that you're already dead, but we're still having the conversation. It's... That's not bad. Yeah. That is not bad. <laughs> Think about it. Well, yeah, I, I, just from listening to the, the album, uh, something that's very distinct to your voice is, uh, I, even though not being able to see you, I still know what exactly was going on with the, uh, with the mic the whole time. That's pretty cool. Because you, and stop me if I'm putting words in your mouth, but you kind of like to uh, deconstruct the thing as it's happening. That's exactly my goal. And what the problem is, is for, if you force deconstruction or you for, because stand-up comedy is one of those things like you can be doing it for 35 years and you can go on stage and feel like you're, it's the first time you've done it. Well, it's not quite like that. But sometimes, you know, you're taping, and so you start to, in the old, like when I did the, the DVD thing, I was much more in my head on it. So the fact that I could just kind of like uh, relax into that style, mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that any night you'd see me, you wouldn't see that style. But the fact that I was able to really be loose with it, and it, yeah, that would be defined what I, without me talking much more about it because I'm making myself sick, but define kind of what I, exactly what I do, which is I say the joke, I talk about if it went over, I explain to you when I wrote the joke, castigate, and I can't even remember really most of the topics on the album. I have a sheet that has them, but I forget most of the, most of the things because a lot of the things seem like throwaway lines. I mean, not throwaway, but like in the moment lines. Do you have a, an actual like mission statement when you go on stage, like a thing you're trying to achieve? Or is that just something you're keeping in the back of your mind? I think I go on stage every night or well, we used to go on stage uh, with the same, same kind of approach that's always been, which is there's new material that I'm working on. So, so let's say I'm working on a set for something or this is always, is there's always the new things that I'm working on. And then, there's always how I'm feeling right before I go on. And then I just always hope that I'll be able to go out and have it be a spontaneous thing. But then if it's not spontaneous, I'll talk about the fact that I don't feel spontaneous. Yeah. 
And so that's kind of like all of those things, except on really bad nights when it doesn't matter that uh, your <laughs> technique, it doesn't matter your philosophy. You know, there's sometimes you just don't feel like, you know, it just isn't going to work. But mo mostly that style, which took many, many years. I mean, I started comedy 84 take to develop it even if could deconstruct off stage mm -hmm. i still wouldn't feel as comfortable sometimes on stage so this this was the uh i hate to keep going on about it but no no that's what this podcast is for <laughs> well i feel like that was the when i listened to the show when we were going to put it out uh, mm -hmm. i listened back to it here's what happened i had edited the show when it first came out it was for a special thing records mm -hmm. and the guys that special thing Records said, well, these two nights are so different. Would you consider just releasing those two nights as they were? Oh, I, I, there was a time period where I thought, Oh, maybe, but then I said, no, I, I just, it didn't seem right to me. I wanted to turn it into a show. I wanted to turn. So I then that's what took so long because they could have edited it, but it was more like, I don't think I was going to let go of that part of the editing or whatever it was. So I put really kind of edited the whole thing. I think now this, if anybody from a special thing says I'm uh, lying, just remember, I don't lie. I misrepresent because I'm a very old man. Yeah. I think I, did, um, I, I think I did all the editing uh, myself. And I, uh, when I listened back to it, I was just thrilled because, you know, thrilled without being an egomaniac. It was like, wow. I could listen to it seven years later and it's still, I can still feel right back at that night, you know? Well, and I feel like you made a lot of jokes about the editing, but it did edit together, together seamlessly. I made so many jokes. I don't want to see this. Uh, I go, like I said, special, you're in trouble with special thing records. Get me someone smaller on the phone. Yeah. And to their credit, I mean, they did, they edited the two nights together uh, very, very well. I'm very um, uh, happy with how it sounds and all that, you know, so they really did capture it. But you probably wouldn't know that it was two nights, right? I mean, you do say it at one point. Yeah. But you couldn't tell from like audio quality or a specific audience laugh or something like that. It was so great to do the album. We edited the DVD that we made, which was, we filmed it in 2003, we released it in 2009. And we were so so limited to the cuts. And it was at a place called M-Bar. M-Bar, mm -hmm. which is a place in the 90s and 2000s. So there was a people coming, like it was like a, a bus station. The, the wait persons were coming in front of the microphone. So it was so hard to put that together. Whereas this was like, wow, I really can. As long as it sounds okay, I can do it. And they, yeah, I, say, I even say, I'll do seven nights. I'll do 12 nights. Yeah. I'll loop it. I'll loop it. <laughs> Did, would, would you say then that your style is like 50% writing on your feet and 50% what you come with? Or I would say that the writing on my feet is stuff like get me someone smaller on the phone and all that stuff. All of that is on my feet. Some of them fit into patterns of things that I will, would, would go into anyway. You know, I would talk about that anyway. And when I'm talking about that, which I would do with the regular set is then I would weave stuff as it occurs to me to throw it in there. Well, first of all, 
I didn't plan for the mic to fall down. So all of those things, I never had said those things before, yeah. but uh, it's not, it's not like improv, like, well, real, let's say we're going to do real improv where you were going to really do new things because it is based on things that, you know, every time I've been on stage, I'm, I make fun of my representation. You know, every time I'm on stage, I make fun of wherever I am. So, yeah. but it just flowed so well and cut together so well. I don't know what more to say about it, except that I'm still kind of thrilled about it. <laughs> because my wife is like, you need a record. I need a record. You know, I don't want to die. I'm not saying I'm dying, but say I did die. I do want a record of what I did so people can enjoy. No, that makes sense. Uh, you were talking about uh, having OCD and getting into therapy uh, late in life. And your podcast is even called Thought Spiral. That's right. With, with your deconstruction style, was there a moment where it had to kind of, the therapy kind of had to change your act to make it healthier, where it's just once you learn to stop ruminating on certain things? I think that it helps my, well, the therapy and also Prozac. Mm -hmm. uh, the Prozac really, really was something I, I needed because it was basically untreated for so long. And uh, for the, for the, a, I, I have OCD and ADD together, which a lot of people do. They go together a lot. Yeah. So for the ADD, I had been taking Adderall since I was 50 and it helped. I mean, it literally changed my life. Uh, it, uh, it got me to feel a lot, lot more comfortable and be able to focus because the thing is, if you look at the illness, let's say if you, there's no model for a lot of these uh, conditions, OCD, that fit into illness, completely illness, and, uh, as opposed to uh, behavior therapy and things you can change about it. But accepting that it is an illness mm -hmm. is something that's really helped me. Because when I'm, you can drive yourself, if you have OCD and you're uh, someone who just keeps worrying and worrying and worrying, you can keep worrying in, into loops that go over and over and over and over and over. So uh, the fact that I can sometimes go, oh, it's the, it's the disease. It's in my family. Yeah. My family, all, all through my family, and probably way back to the, they say like to the beginning of time is like this fight, flight, or freeze kind of thing. And uh, it, it works good in the, in if you're in a jungle or in a cave, but constantly fight, flighting, or freezing is not good for life. So uh, what was the question <laughs> How did your act change based on therapy and medication? Oh, and okay. So yes, the, the act changed absolutely because I'm able to look at all relationships. So for example, I'm talking to you. Mm -hmm. So I may say while this is going on, uh, what, what's wrong what, to myself? What are you doing? Mm -hmm. You're not listening. You know? But because of therapy, I can let, it's not that I don't have feelings, but I can let them go. I can address them and say, oh, that's what I'm feeling. Let it go. Whereas in the old days, I didn't know where my anxiety was coming from. Everything seemed like an actual, uh, I didn't know what um, anxiety was or panic was. Right. I, I didn't realize I was in that mode all the time. I thought, oh, I'm just whatever. So uh, as opposed to where I'll, it's not like I'll go in and say to her, to my therapist, look, this is what happened at the club, and then she'll diagnose it, but, or, 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 or something specifically applies to it that you can say, 
was from therapy. And I'm, I'm talking like an idiot now, but the point is I definitely like in the podcast, mm-hmm. the, the podcast, which is uh, thought spiral, which is with my partner, J. Elvis Weinstein for a long time. When we started the podcast, it was very, very hard because it's hard for me to listen. And so and then, it would, then I'd yell at myself. And then I used to go through these loops. And the good thing about it on a podcast is that Josh, Josh wanted to call the original podcast like uh, therapy. You know, I forgot he had different names, but a therapy, uh, therapy with Andy. You know, it's like talking about my therapy that I just because I just gotten into it yeah. when I we were talking about doing a podcast. So we were going to call. It. So he's very, very good, Josh, at seeing the kind of thing I do and seeing how it affects me. Because like one of my things on Twitter. I learned was that I would get into these arguments with people and I would realize, oh, this is not your father that you're arguing with. I can clearly, your father has passed away. Uh-huh. I can tell the guy doesn't look like your father. So, so like my father, who I loved, made me feel I loved him, but he was a very smart man and he had, the, and he could make you feel stupid, not by like, I'm going to make you feel stupid, but he mm. could make me feel stupid. And so I actually did end up feeling stupid at times, you know, if I'm arguing, whatever I'm arguing with, like if I'm arguing with atheists about that, I have my own concept of spirituality and then they, they think I'm, they go, oh, you're an idiot. You're an idiot. So it's like, uh, if you don't understand those patterns that you're feeding into, that you're getting angrier at a thing online because you're thinking it's related to your family, then you just, go, then you just act out and you act. And, you know, that's why I am amazed in the way that it took me so long to get to therapy because it's so clear how helpful it can be just to be able to bring focus to all those things. And I'm saying this is like, you just described my last year of like, I finally got a medication for bipolar disorder. I found out it was a thing that ran in my family. So I'm not just prying. I, I'm curious. Wow. Well, well, I didn't think you were prying. <laughs> yeah. Did you find that getting on medication you had to almost retrain your brain for creativity? No, because, and that's lucky. That is lucky because when I started stand-up and I would, had been doing it for like a th- about three or four years, I went through a really, really bad time period that I didn't understand because I didn't understand what the, how the mechanism of OCD worked. So I would be on stage and I would say, I am now holding, no, I wouldn't say this, but mm-hmm. in my mind, I go, yeah, yeah. I'm holding the microphone in my left hand. I can't stop thinking about the fact that I'm holding the microphone. Uh, maybe I should go this way. How can this be stand-up comedy if this is what I'm thinking about in my head? And so I think if I had started to take Prozac before I developed as a comic or as I was developing as a comic, Maybe it would have been different or I would have been more scared. Or I, I think any argument you make, it would have helped no matter where I was. But it definitely, it, 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 I, at first I was scared, like, will it make me less in the moment on stage? But it doesn't make me less in the moment at all. Uh, I, I, I'm never, and when I say in the moment, I'm never, my mind is kind of stream of consciousness. Like, as I'm talking to you, it's stream of consciousness. I'm, when it's on stage, it's, stream of consciousness so it didn't it didn't stop that but it, it did enable me to not necessarily the i think the adderall definitely made me even on stage be much more comfortable and focused mm-hmm. uh the antidepressant has helped me my mood in general and it didn't it 
change the style at all. It just made me more, it just in general makes me more comfortable when I'm on stage. But I'm also curious because you kind of have a more immersive arts background too, because I, I was talking to Sean Cullen for some dirt on you and he was telling me you were like <laughs> trained professionally as a musician, as a like yeah. concert musician. Well, I was a, a violinist from fourth grade through uh, college. And so I played that long. I had private lessons in fourth grade, but I, I, I came to hate it very, very quickly. And, but that, that's a whole other thing Oh, okay. about how I had to please my violin teacher. And, uh, but that wasn't your question. Your question was, what were you? Have you taken any of that over to your act or even just your, your wife is a very accomplished photographer. Like how is these other oh. surrounding art influences? But also if you have a specific breaking point where you're like, I hate the violin, it's comedy. I totally want to hear about that. Oh, okay. Well, the thing about the violin was that it all became a symbol of the fact that my mom says I wanted to play it. And so I thought I did want to play it. I, I believe that part of it, but I uh, very quickly learned to hate it. Mm. And, and then very quickly, my violin teacher became like another mother in a way, another mother figure to me. And she became disappointed in me. And I wanted to please her all the time because I had, like my mom, as, a, as I say on the podcast often, my mom's passed away, right? I'll, I'll take your word for it. I just want to say one more time before <laughs> I start talking about her again. She will not hear this. No, my mom was very depressed when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, we didn't know that it wasn't us who was causing it, which is just the way depression works. Yeah. And um, so I was very tied into, if I told her, I, did, I couldn't say to my parents, I don't want to play violin. I'll give you a perfect example. I, one time I, I woke up in the morning and my, my, my violin had cracked mm-hmm. because it, it's subject to temperature changes. So if it gets cold and then it gets hot and then the heat expands, I mean, the wood expands and contracts, it can, it can break. I was convinced that I had broken it. So I didn't tell my mother, I didn't tell my violin teacher for like months. And when I finally did tell them, they, it was no big deal. I, or I kind of like noticed it. To, oh, yeah. but that's the way my whole childhood was. I couldn't, I couldn't say what I wanted or be honest that I didn't want to play anymore. And so it became a whole theme for my life. You know, then I became a, a musician and uh, like a, a rig, you know, like guitar and wrote songs and stuff like that. And from therapy, I realized that so many of the, everything in my life, like I, when I would sing, I would be am I a good singer? Am I not a good singer? This person doesn't like the way I sing. That person likes the way I sing. Everything I did was based on, I began to hate the singing and music before I got into comedy because I, because I didn't realize how much I was tied into what other people thought. About yeah. It, you know? Um, but the thing about the music thing that's interesting is that uh, I do write when I write now. I write, I write, so I've always written songs but I haven't written as much recently, but when I do write, I'm, I do write funnier things. I was always afraid to be funny in music. You know, I was even going to call myself Andrew Kindler when I was a musician or po- when, I, when I was in high school, I thought if I was a poet, I would be Andrew Kindler. It's very serious. I mean, as an Andrew myself, I think Andy's way better. I, I, yeah. I feel like I had to be an old man my whole life. I never got to be an Andy. Oh well, you oh so you are always called Andrew. Yes, and you and but no, Drew, not Drew though. 
No, I, I hate that. That's the one time in my life I stood up for myself. You hate it. Okay, so you have some of the same problems that I have, except different problems. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. We're like overlapping therapy sessions right now. It's, it's amazing. I'm having a breakthrough. Uh, and, not, and not that you have to, we have to only relate to this to comedians, but when comedians have these issues, it really is like so great for people who have, because like I'm talking about Pete Davidson, because the way Pete Davidson has talked about his, you know, I didn't even know what borderline personality was till he talked about it. And, uh, he, and the fact that he, he brings it out, you know, like I'm so aware that he has mental problems because he's talked about it. And so it, it permeates his comedy too. You know what I mean? It's like, and maybe I'm reading this into it, but when I see him, I feel that he's like riding the line of being uncomfortable all the time. Right. And that's why I'd love to watch him. I'd love to watch him for those reasons. So, so that all this vulnerability has come from him acknowledging what he's going through. And I think, you know, not that he did it to be a hero, but I just think whenever people talk about what they're going through, it's so important. You know, like I read the book. Did we talk about the book Marbles? No. Ellen Fournay. Oh, I actually, I have that on my bookshelf behind me. It's so great. Yes, that's a graphic memoir. And that's where I started. I never had heard about uh, bipolar. I mean, I had, I had in my family that I knew there were things and my, you know, I knew that there were things, but I didn't know as much about it. And her book really was amazing. No, uh, that's, that's the first thing somebody told me to read when I got the diagnosis. And it was so incredibly helpful. Right. And you realize, okay, so like I have, I have some things that bipolar, like some things that bipolar people have, like I, like her very much oversharing, yeah. you know, like she'll overshare or she'll, um, and even that thing where she talks, where she shows herself doing a poster because she's an artist mm-hmm. and she was saying like, she got so manic, she couldn't, she couldn't stop doing the poster. So it just, it started to fill in. So it was just amazing because when you, when you hear somebody else, talk about something that's similar to you which it really is a revelation oh yeah no another good one for that is uh touched with fire it's a little bit more sciencey but it's all about um the creative inclination in bipolar disorder wow who wrote that you know what i've got it in my bet one second okay <laughs> sorry it's uh touched with fire my apologies and uh touched with fire yeah k redfield jameson is their name. Cool. It's really helped me spot my own behavior. Yes, yes. That must be amazing because the other thing I was going to tell you was, uh, you, you know Harvey Picar? No. Harvey Picar wrote, uh, he's passed away, but he wrote a, a, a great, I'm a, I, love, I love graphic memoir type stuff, gra- graphic things in general. Mm-hmm. Um, he wrote American Splendor, which was a famous. Yes, okay. And they, and, and they did the movie about him. Uh, with Paul, I think it was a Paul Giamatti who played him in the movie. Yeah, Paul Giamatti. Yeah, he did a thing. Uh, one of his comics was it was a person with autism, and they were in England, and he started to write to Harvey Picar, and you just got such a view into what this particular person's autism was, and you start to see the continuum. It's not like we're all in the same wavelength kind of but i relate to things 
in bipolar people that doesn't mean, mean I'm bipolar, but I, but there's, there's so much overlap. There's, there's overlapping, especially in borderline personality disorder too. And, uh, there's certain people you're more attracted to because of your inclinations and just personality types. Because it's a challenge kind of, or you, you recognize it. I recognize it. Cause like, um, borderline personality, uh, people are a hundred percent about their emotions. And just with sort of like, I also have a dissociative disorder because I have trouble expressing anger or anything like that. So I'm more inclined to date a person with borderline personality disorder because I almost go like, what emotion? That's so sexy and exotic. And uh, <laughs> oh, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Well, and, and is this something that you did? Did you, what did you think you had before you were diagnosed as bipolar? I didn't know because I started just having random blackouts and I would come to in random places. Like I live in Toronto and there was one day where I just kept waking up in Scarborough, Ontario. And I had no idea why I wasn't drunk or anything. There was no program I could check myself into. And I just... You, you literally didn't remember where you were? No, no. Wow. I've had other people watch it too. And it's not, I don't have multiple personalities. It's just uh, uh, like the TV's on, but there's, I haven't hit record. Like there's no, there's no tape to play back. It's very weird. Man. Yeah. Must've been hard for you to figure this out too, right? Or Well, I had to take a break from standup because, and I was very lucky that when I started doing uh, medication, I got to interview Maria Bamford that same week. And she was very much like, okay, what are you on? What are you heard? And she just talked me through the whole thing. It's so amazing because I, I had a real, I mean, I had a real breakthrough when I heard her, not a breakthrough for me, but a breakthrough in terms of like, well, yeah, a breakthrough was for me when I heard her talking on Greg Fitzsimmons' podcast. They were in a, uh, they were in this, it was a live version of Greg Fitzsimmons' podcast in a bar. Nobody was even listening to them. <laughs> and then she started talking about all this stuff and how she ended up, she had to call Bruce from the airport and all, we had the same manager. Yeah. So, wow. And so she's been very inspirational to me. In fact, I did a, Ellen Forney did a book reading of her book, Marbles, and she had Maria on that show. Oh, wow. so it was really cool. So that, okay. And how long ago did you talk to Maria about that? This would have been, this would have been 2019, actually. This would have been just last year. Oh, so it's been about a year that you've... Uh, that I've been on medication for it. I was just, I was on a thing that she was on where it's not that I couldn't remember words, it's that I couldn't say certain words. So if I had a joke about the word carousel, I could see carousel in my mind. I could see the word in front of me. I couldn't say it. Wow. And the more stressed out I get, the more likely I am to not be able to say more words and then also black out, which is just a nightmare if you're trying to do stand-up. And that is not a, a complete, I mean, I imagine it's an unusual symptom, right? The blacking out. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people don't know why they're blacking out, but it's, is it not that unusual? Mine's kind of a combo of like a disassociative disorder, but also with the bipolar, uh, I'm bipolar too. So I tend to be more depressed than I am manic. Right, right. I know a little bit. I'm, not, I'm, I'm no expert on anything, but I do know a little bit about what you're saying. Yeah. Right. 
So my brain just goes like, we know how to deal with him when he's depressed, but if his brain starts going too fast, we don't know what to do with that. So it just shuts down. It, it blacks out. Wow. Yeah. It's so interesting you said that one thing. I hate to interrupt, but the one thing when I did- No, a, I'm interviewing a, a, you, Andy. You can interrupt. Oh, oh, I'm very sorry about that. <laughs> uh, but I, was, uh, I, I always forget, uh, I always forget where I am. It's, it's happened about a million times during this particular conversation. And I'm learning more. So uh, I'm always think it's dementia because that's OCD. So you, it's easier for me to go into, do I have dementia? Do I not have dementia? Do I have dementia? But my therapist, because she's been with me four years, says it's obviously not dementia. You just have anxiety. So the anxiety starts to, starts to go, I can't remember your name. I can't remember what we're talking about. I can't remember what we're talking about. And it gets into that thing where you just start uh, berating yourself. Yeah. Uh, about about that. Now, I don't know how I got into that. I, I think we just got on a wonderful sidetrack. A wonderful, t- that, and that's the thing. Here's what I'm trying to, here's where I am right now. Mm-hmm. Every conversation, every time I go on stage, every part of my life is still struggling with this. I don't remember where I am. Do I, have, like, for this thing, you know, I didn't know what we we're going to talk about today. So, so what, you know, if he wants to talk about the speech, I got to have it here. I do want to talk about the speech. Yeah. Well, you don't have to, but, uh, but uh, you don't, I'm, I'm not saying that as a way in, but the point is, it's like, there's preparation I do. And then there's the, and then there's the emotional problem. And then there's the, the mental problems I have. Yeah. So the mental problem I have to constantly think that there's something more to stand up. I'm not doing that when it all comes together, it, it will be this that uh, is all kind of nonsense in a way. Do you think that because of all this work, and I'm getting us back to an interview question, but I'm tying it in seamlessly. Do you think that you've only really started finding your true voice now? Or how long did that take you? Sort of like how uh, George Carlin said he only found his actual voice around like 95, 96. Well, I think there's, uh, oh, by the way, I forgot what I was saying, which was on Letterman. I, uh, my big fear all the time was that I would lose my place on TV. And Letterman, I knew early on, he, he doesn't love it when comics have bullet points. He, he wants you to, ha- to know your act kind of thing. So yeah. it became, he didn't say don't have bullet points, but I did end up ha- not having the bullet point because I, you know, I wanted to make him happy in a way, which was all fine. Mm-hmm. But so one year, so one time I was on the show and I knew that the, I lost my place. And I started to freak out and I had memorized the names of the bits. So one bit was about Michelangelo, one bit was, so when I get to the bit about Michelangelo, I forgot what the bit was. So it was like what you were talking about. You knew the name of the thing. I knew the name of the joke was Michelangelo, but I didn't know what the joke was. One person at the show noticed it. Most people didn't notice it, but to me, it felt like it was happening uh, forever, you know? Right. Yeah. And yes, I think that I did find my voice as a comic, but not like George Carlin, because George Carlin was harder. Well, I'm not George Carlin. What was harder for George Carlin was that he got success in this one kind of style. Right. So it became, it became a very hard thing for him to do. Because if you even think like, like Carlin's actual performance level is very kind of broad sometimes. He's like, yeah. in fact, he was very, de- uh, the story is, whether it's true or not, that he was very, very depressed when Rick Moranis, 
did an impression of him on SCTV. He wasn't mad, but it just was like, oh my God, that's who I am. Because it was like, Rick Moranis was doing things like, uh, when I got knocked out, I came to, was I knocked in? Weird. <laughs> you know, there's blue food, but there's nothing weird. So George Carlin, according to the story, he took that to heart, like that, oh my God, I'm terrible, right? Because mm -hmm. he was very, obviously he was very hard on himself. I became more myself just through doing it more and more and more and more. But I was on that, I was on that route. I was on that route. So it yeah. would have been either I would have quit <laughs> out of frustration or I would have gone through it. And uh, I guess that my desire to stand up was so great that I went through it. But had I been, had I had, I would argue that at any point in my life, had I had therapy or medication or anything to intervene with what I went through, it would have been helpful. Yeah, yeah. It took me a long time. That style that I did on that album would never have been, I couldn't have done it at any other point in my, uh, I'm putting quotes from my career, because it took to be that developed and in the moment for all those things to happen. I could be in the moment when I first started, but there'd be no way, it's almost like an impossible thing. Could I have been that good when I wasn't that good? No. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it depends on what your technique is like. To me, I never wanted to be, I never wanted to be just good to make the audience happy. And if I did, I wasn't happy because I, I, I had gone through that where I could right. see how, especially in the 80s and the 90s, the crowds were like so pumped for laughter. You could work them in the comedy boom and you could work them. And mm -hmm. before you know it, your act is not you. The, everyone always talks about the, the comedy boom of the 80s, but I'm almost worried, like, what was the, the fallout of that in the 90s? Was there a comedy recession? Oh, yeah. The, there was a comedy implosion. I mean, I wrote an article in 1991 called The Hacks Comics Handbook in National Lampoon. Right, yeah. Yeah, and so that was kind of like right when it was all going to go, it was all going to explode and, you know, implode. So it imploded. But then it, 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 uh, it gave birth to the alternative scene in uh, L.A. and New York, which yeah. was uh, David, you know, David Cross and Janine Garofalo and all those amazing people. So, yeah, it, it hurt comedy. All the people like who couldn't make it in, who were like driven out of clubs because they became so hacky. It was just too much comedy, right? And too few people to fill the spots. It did. It did uh, f uh, fuel this other mo movement, which I actually think has taken over comedy. Like I think all of comedy now is pretty much what we called alternative comedy back in the nineties. Yeah, you've always been this sort of arbiter of taste and what is hack, either as a character or what have you. Right. Right. But. Uh, your act is also sort of like based in old school show business. So is, is there like a real love for that where you like, because the first name that comes to mind is um, uh, Buddy Sorrell on the Dick Van Dyke show. Like it's that old school. So I'm just wondering who are your, not to be Mark Marin, but like who are your guys that you're pulling from in that? Well, what I'm pulling from inspiration, Inspirationally is like Letterman and, and you know, Marimarco who didn't, you know, it's like the self-deprecation line of that and back to Carson when he would say uh, uh, that joke didn't work. And Letterman, who I think was the king of it, was like, yeah, um, uh, 
What was the question again? Say one more thing. Oh, I was just wondering because it's 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 based in the old school show business. So I'm wondering where did that? Oh yes, yes. Where does that actually come from? Well, first of all, there's a true love that I have for comics. Over you know everybody from Rickles to all you know like Rickles. My father, who was not in the business, was best friends with Don Rickles for a couple of years when he grew up. Oh wow! They walked back and forth to school together. And my, and, and, my, and my dad's hilarious, but, no, but nothing, it was no connection, just they grew up together. But, you know, like Rickles, I never forget many, many years ago when I first met Kumal Nanjiani mm-hmm. and uh, I was saying to him, oh, you know, talk about Rickles. He goes, you like Rickles? And I was like, oh yeah, he's the greatest. And I never realized if you hadn't seen Rickles and you, did, you didn't understand that, yes, he was a bit of, you know, he was a little bit of a prejudiced guy. He was a bit yes. of a bigot. And, but, but, and, and, and I'm not arguing that his stuff, you know, that, that his stuff should be done today, but his in the moment, but his in the moment hilarity right. was what I loved. And, uh, and that goes through David Tell and all, and, you know, there are people. So I was always influenced from everybody, from everybody I saw, Shecky Green. Uh, well, I didn't see him that much, but all those people I was influenced by, but I was also fascinated with the, with the, with the, the same stuff that I'm not comparing myself to Lenny Bruce, but that that's the kind of stuff he was interested in when he, he would do his impressions right. of all the different people. So I think I'm in that same uh, tradition. And I used to go to Vegas all the time. And I used to play at the Riviera hotel. Uh, Cause the guy who booked the comics there, his name was Steve Sharippa. He became an actor. He was on the Sopranos. Right, He's yeah. like a really great actor, but he was like a, we were friends and he'd have all these terrible acts that would come through or not even come through, but would send their, uh, their resumes to him, you know, ventriloquists and all these crazy. So I've always been fascinated with the uh, schmaltzy side of show business. So I do, I've always considered it kind of a, I consider it like I'm making fun of them, but that's also my style. Right. I would say my style is 100% cat skills, but, I, but I'm making a joke about it. I'm remembering now there was an interview or, or somebody just let Lenny Bruce be a DJ on air for a day and just talk about comedy. And he said, W.C. Fields, horrible anti-Semite, great joke writer. <laughs> <laughs> Is that true about W.C. Fields? Oh, he made that up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. oh, my God. I mean, either look it up or don't, <laughs> depending what mood you're in. But Oh, my God. Wow. Yeah. I, you know what? As a Jewish person, I still will always love them. There's no way I can't love W.C. Fields, but uh, that's pretty interesting to know that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 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 jumping topics a little bit. Yeah. You were mentioning SCTV uh, earlier, and I think it's really interesting because you have a weird relationship with Canada that I would almost equate to uh, Andrea Martin in like, an American that we've just really accepted as our own. Well, that sounds great to me. I will go for that hundred percent. I mean, that's in my dream. I mean, I, I, that's how I grew up was I saw SCTV coming down and it was like a revelation because I've always said that Canadians just by the, who they are as people are kind of, you know, looking into American culture, you're kind of like observing it so you can see it and you're detached from it. So yes. you can see the, the hilarity of it. Right. You know? And so, I always felt that that was kind of my point of view a little bit was Canadian in that way. And just by how many geniuses there are per capita 
in that country. So do you, do you think that there's something about our culture and our style of comedy that you latch onto, or is it more that we've latched, latched onto you in like, are you the Jerry Lewis of Canada? No, because I was influenced by uh, Saturday Night Live. And uh, even though I'm not a sketch guy, <laughs> Saturday Night Live at SCTV and that, and I didn't probably even realize uh, that it was all from Canada. You know, that people like Eugene Levy were from Canada. All these amazing people who came down uh, were from Canada. Right. Well, I mean, even when I was researching you, and I know you've spent a lot of time in Canada, but like the first couple of YouTube hits are uh, the Chris Jericho web series you did <laughs> for CBC, uh, you doing a thing with John Doerr. Um, some of my favorite times I've seen you live is always with Sean Cullen. Oh, Yes. Yes, because I've always had him on my shows because he's, uh, to me, he's the greatest alternative. He's there's no greater alternative comment than he is. Right. You know, Canada, I have a tendency to over-romanticize Canada. You know, like, uh, I didn't used to think there was no uh, prejudice there, but I probably thought in every single way it's better. But obviously when you learn about all the first nation stuff. And I even remember going to Edmonton in the, cause I used to work. Uh, it was just, a, I, I worked at all Western at these Western yuck yucks. So it's like, I was fated for all this stuff to happen. You know, mm -hmm. like it's just, I don't know how it happened, but I might be living there soon if things don't work out. Although I feel more confident now. Okay. He's going to lose maybe. Well, I mean, clearly we'd be happy to have you. Well, you say that now you say that now. But I, I just have a feeling I can't get in touch with Andrew at the airport. And it's yeah. Andrew. First of all, he doesn't know me because he would know that I hate the word Andrew. If he really, if that guy, Andy Kindler. Yeah. I don't know who he is. I, he looks familiar to me. Yeah. <laughs> I believe he's Jewish. I believe he's Jewish. I'm just throwing it in there. You don't have to take that and do what you want. You see how I turned you into kind of a collaborator with the Nazis is what I turned you into. This was an expert hole you put me in. <laughs> no, because uh, everybody knows that uh, I'm the one who will force people into positions that they don't hold. <laughs> Someone's got to be the bad guy. Yeah, yeah. But no, it is. It is amazing. It is amazing, and and that I've been coming up there since those now since the late '80s. You know, I've been Saskatoon, Edmonton. I've been to uh, Medicine Hat. I've been to Swift Current. I've never been to Swift Current, but I kind of like the music. <laughs> Woo! Uh, places in the British Columbia where you can smell the lumber. Yeah. So I feel as if I'm more Canadian than you are now. That's what I, I'm going to change places with you if I have a problem. I wouldn't, I wouldn't fight it. Uh, on the speech, I wanted to talk about how uh, if you ever get frustrated with show business and you realize that Otto Frank, it took him seven to eight pitches to sell his daughter's diary, <laughs> you know? So, uh, but the end of the joke, at the end of the joke, I say, I would never have made it there because I love coffee so much and I wouldn't be able to, I have my grinder up there. Yeah. So I, as the Germans are leaving, I would just say, are they gone? <laughs> what, what's that sound? What is that sound? Schweinhund. <laughs> That's all I know is Hogan's Heroes. In my image of my life, my, my coffee will defeat me. All right.
it will eventually be the death of me. I'm going to do a lazy Howard Cosell breakdown of uh, how you thought the, the speech went. Okay, sure. So like, first of all, 25 years ago, how did, did you approach them about doing this? Did they approach you? Well, what I, what I did was I had first went to Montreal 93 and uh, in 95, I came back and I did this like, because of the article in the National Lampoon, I had did a live presentation of how to be a hack comic. Oh, okay. So I had like Pat Oswald and Blaine Kapatch and all these people from LA who came over. They, we, they, we demonstrated and it was really fun. And so the head of the festival said, why don't you come back next year and do some other kind of presentation? And then my manager, Bruce, he suggested, he just came up with the name State of the Industry and just was one of those things where it just started off. We did it in 96. And it just became one of these, like, it was an inside, it was always meant that it's like an insider's, like, if you, if you didn't know all the people, like, a lot of people watch this one, they, uh, like, my therapist watched it, and she goes, you know, I feel, I feel bad because I don't know all those names. Right. So, like, it really was at the beginning more of an insider kind of... Uh, roast, almost, or... Yeah, it's, a, it's, always been, it's always been kind of roast, but it just happened to be that it's like I didn't sign a 25 year contract. It was like, we would do it year by year. And it just became a thing that became a tradition and moved from uh, different hotels at the festival. It was always in the festival in a hotel convention room. And it just, I mean, this, there were tough years and every year in a way is tough. Uh, Cause it's, a, you never know how it's going to go. Well, I mean, how have you had to change it as the industry's changed over the 25 years? Well, I've had to change it because uh, a lot, because early on I would go through varieties and Hollywood reporters and I would find industry stories, like things that were happening in the industry. And I would do things about them at the festival. Well, it turned out nobody, I mean, at this point, nobody cares about all that inside this person's owned by that person. Also, there's not a big uh, rollout now of the, of the fall shows. There is but there's TV all year round. So I just had to change it from what's new and bad in the comedy business to just generally what's bad in the comedy business or bothering me. And then every year it would be something different. Like this year it was about how comics like Adam Carolla and Joe Rogan, they turned like Joe Rogan turned the lowest common, common denominator style act. He's turned into a hundred millionaire in a different field. How, you know, it's like we used to hate bad. I, I apologize to Jay Leno because I used to hate bad comedy just because it was obnoxious, but now it's dangerous, you know? So. Right. Jay Leno was at least benign. Yes, exactly. Just, you know, uh, the comics in the eighties who were wondering where, what part of the chicken, where the McDougars were coming from. It was annoying, but it wasn't, it wasn't life threatening like this, like these people are. So, how did you prep for this one specifically? Were you doing a lot of Zoom shows beforehand? And like, I'm interested to see how that would affect your style because there's more to deconstruct, but it is less personal. I, well, it's so weird because it felt more personal because I couldn't see people and I couldn't, it felt more intimate because I wasn't distracted by being at a podium in a convention room where people are coming in and out you know, it used to be when the, when the, when the first started, it was, everybody was there and it was like packed, but then you don't know, it goes through different phases. So this felt like I was less distracted. And because my wife was giggling the whole, it was so great. My wife was, 
who usually is nervous during the speech because, you know, she uh, she's sitting in this room and she's seeing everybody else react to it. It's nerve wracking. She was in, I could hear her laughing. And, I, and every time I would hear her laugh, I'd be, it would cheer me up. And I'd be like, so it was really, really, it was almost impossible to prepare for only because of my OCD problems and the fact that I'm not really, I'm not doing any shows. I'm not even yeah. doing any Zoom shows really. But I, I had a feeling like right from the beginning that it would be good, that it wouldn't be as, as uh, stressful as it normally was. And it wasn't. Because sometimes I'd like throw up, throw up the day of the speech and i yeah. <laughs> get very nervous. In terms of going after people, like you made that crack about learning Taekwondo after making fun of Adam Sandler one time. Yeah, yeah, and Joe Rogan. Yeah, that's true, that's true. Oh, wow. The, uh, Alan Colvert, who's in those movies that he's in, he's been in, I, I made the joke that uh, Alan Colvert's last name refers to his career because <laughs> he's been in 80 Adam Sandler movies and nobody has any idea who he is. Yeah. So I was joking that this was what I loved about this was that I could go after these people and they couldn't get into my bunker where it was. Cause that's the thing. Like I was always afraid Joe Rogan, who is actually an amazing Taekwondoist and is a world-class athlete. He could kill me. But I actually did learn Taekwondo because of confrontations I had had. This one with Alan Covert at the improv where I thought he was going to punch me. So then I thought I can't go my whole life without learning how to defend myself. But since then, mm -hmm. therapy cured me of my fear because I was always a short guy and I was always scared. And I always thought I have to stand up for myself at one point and I'm a coward for not fighting. Yeah. And then my therapist was like, what do you, some, you really think fighting is the answer? I said, no, no, it's not the answer, but I feel like I'm a coward. So as soon as I let go of that feeling like a coward, I stopped worrying about getting beaten up. Huh. It's like, go ahead. I mean, I don't say go ahead, but, <laughs> but all of it was just the fear of it, the fear of it, the fear of it. It's like, I don't want anybody to punch me, but I, I was living in this like, uh, Billy Jack, you seen Billy Jack? Yes. Yeah, so I'm living in this Billy Jack world where I think eventually I'm going to have to say to some bully, when I see you pour this flower in this young girl's head, I go berserk and do that inside out axe kick right <laughs> to his head. Yeah. He's one inch, he goes, and there's not a thing you're going to be able to do about it. He goes, really? Really? Inside out, boom. I now know that that's not the answer. Right. <laughs> nor will it ever be the answer. So it really, I, I got a little bit of what John Lewis and the, and the freedom fighters felt. I'm, I'm joking. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but the fact that you are a relational, we are nonviolent. We are not going to be violent. So in a way we have strength by being resolute. So I, it totally cured me of that. I just don't think about it anymore. I mean, I'm lying because I do think, uh, that uh, Crystalia and those guys will find out what I said. Like I said about Crystalia, I said, you know, everybody's talking about all his personal life, but let's not forget what a horrible comic he was. Yeah. <laughs> I also ended up taking Taekwondo for similar reasons, not by getting beat up by celebrities, but, you know, just people around. It, it really ended up helping me with anger. Like it was my first foray into therapy. Did you, did you make it all the way up to black belt? Yeah, I, I, I'm, uh, I hate to say it because it sounds like I'm bragging, but I'm a third degree black belt in Taekwondo. Oh, wow. But I still feel like anybody could beat me up. 
Right. <laughs> but yeah, I, I took it for like 18 years or something like that. Oh, wow. How about you? How far did you, how far did you go? I made it to Red Belt. And then they were going to give me nunchucks. And my parents were like, no. No, no nunchucks. Well, it sounds like you learned it. You learned what you needed to learn. Yeah. Sure. yeah. I mean, I, I always do wish I was allowed to have nunchucks, but I, I get it. <laughs> but, I, but I get it. Do you think, because I even wrote down a couple in here that you didn't mention. Do you think that um, cancel culture is actually working? at all i always had a, I, I always had a problem with it because i didn't like one time online i was talking about like i, I hate when like a don lemon or i just hate when it becomes a term that people use as if it's, it's an all agreed upon this was what happens because i think what that ignores is a lot of what's happened the last few years is women and, and trans people saying i don't like what you're saying and i'm going to tell you you're an asshole you know yeah and so then the comics go, whoa, what about my free speech? No, no, that's not free speech. You have the right to say what you want and people have the right to tell you it sucks. So I think a lot of things that was called cancel culture was just people being confronted for the first time. I do see like, remember that woman, she went on a plane to Africa and she made some callous joke. Oh yeah. Yeah. So I don't, I do, I don't like the shaming. idea. I don't like the idea that all can be sh- shamed all the time mm-hmm. but if you think about it like remember when they went after Stephen Colbert for his like he had a bit about this is my Chinese friend yeah this was years ago and they were like oh it's uh, it's like he's being uh, a big no that's that's the that's the character and also he had a track record you have a track record this guy for years has been doing this you know do you really think he's making this joke I do think that uh, it's an overblown thing, cancel culture. And I also believe that, yes, maybe there are cases where it gets too much. But in general, I think we're just in a new area now where people are waking up. They don't want to be the butt of everyone's jokes. And comics will have to move on, I think, to find other topics. (laughs) Right. Well, I mean, it is interesting because, like, Louis C.K. still released a special um yeah you know everyone was mad at dave Chappelle about all the trans stuff and then they gave him the mark twain award that right you know it's who's really being and i i i'm so shocked that ellen being mean is sort of the one that everyone dived in on or just like yeah. of everything that was happening like yes let's get her for being mean in the me too movement the only person we kind of took down was a woman oh my god <laughs> I didn't even think about that. We took it Ellen's gone. Yeah, that's so, yeah. I mean, I think she, she just did an apology speech a few days ago, but. Uh... The thing about Ellen was that there was always kind of like a, the dichotomy between, or whatever the word is, between the nice, I'm the nicest person in the world, and then, but she's not the nicest person. But, you know, this, that's a whole other thing, because she reminds me of Leno in a lot of ways, like, he was always afraid to show his meanness. So he kind of like hides behind the nicest person. In her case, it was like, she just got so much horrible feedback from coming out being gay. I mean, it's so hard to even compare these things. I have, had not heard much of the Chappelle stuff. Is it really bad, trans stuff? It's, it's not great. Right. I mean, it's one of those things of just like, 
I kind of knew where he stood on it the whole time. So I'm like, I'm not surprised that he said it. Right. It's not the most shocking of the terrible things that happened this year. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, like, I don't know if you watched Louis C.K.'s special. No, I didn't. I, 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 uh, I followed it through uh, some guy in the New Yorker wrote a great article. Hilton Owls wrote a great article about it. Yeah. Uh, a friend of mine and I tried to like, uh, stream it so he didn't get money from it and watch it and yes. turn it into a drinking game and it 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 didn't even work. <laughs> I mean you couldn't watch it? Well, no, it's just he's only doing the first half of the jokes at uh anymore because I feel like he's just accepted that this other group of people is now his audience. Oh my god. Like before he used to say something really dark and then make it reasonable or find a way to make it and now he just stops at the dark thing. It feels like you're getting a lot of half jokes. Oh my God. That's, that, you know what? He does, uh, you know, I hate to say he deserves it. He's just not a good guy. I, I never liked it. I was never a fan of his as a person. Yeah. But uh, I think he's, I always thought he was funny, but there's so much manipulation going on there. So like now the manipulation is he's got to appeal to these people. He was never trying to appeal to, right? you know, or he claimed he wasn't trying to appeal to but actually the jokes were very mean-spirited. So in a lot of ways, that was his audience. <laughs> oh, yeah, it was kind of hiding in plain sight in like a, a rewatch sort of way. Yeah. Uh, I know that you've been working on taking a step back from Twitter, but that said, and keeping in the ballpark of the speech, is there a, a Twitter feud that you will go to the grave going like, no, I was right. That was the best one. Uh, uh, no, uh, if it gets to be, if my feelings are severely hurt, then I know it wasn't the best one, you know, because then it's like not fun. Right. But it's like, if uh, I can, I would say the closest it comes to that way is Ricky Gervais. I was going to ask. Yeah. Cause he really is just such an asshole and he's never going to get better. And he did get my, he won because he did like talk about my wife and he, he knows how to get, he's a very, very good bully. Yeah. He, he, he reprinted this guy who hates me, did a review of me to, and to all of his fans on Facebook. And he's just a really, he's a, a, a classic uh, bully, classic uh, uh, old school bully. You know, Oh, you look funny. You're, uh, you know, you're, you're funny looking. You're funny looking. You're too heavy. You know, he hates people who are because of their weight. Yeah. He's got all of his thing when you look back at it and how great the original office was, you have to go, well, I, I'm going to say that was a Stephen Merchant, Ricky Gervais creation. Oh yeah. Especially, I don't know if you've seen Stephen Merchant's uh, hello ladies that he made for. I did say it. That's, I love Stephen Merchant so much more. Yeah, I, I did. I mean, I thought that was, that was, there was uneven partial, but I really loved it. I loved the whole thing. Yeah. I loved him as that character. He really seemed to capture it more of the guy who's kind of creepy, but not uh, Ricky Gervais mean-spirited. Yeah. Uh, my last question is, again, you've got this almost perception or character of the arbiter of good taste in some ways, but then also you're very self-deprecating. So I'm just wondering, in your mind, what are some of your career highlights? What were some of the things that you thought you got to do that was really cool? I think the... To me, my career height 
for me was going on the Letterman show yeah. and then being able to go back on it and to do uh, to do recurring bits of interviewing people on this. You know, I did like a whole bunch of bits of that. Yeah. So that to me, because he was my hero and also because I was doing stuff that he used to do on the show. He couldn't go out anymore. Yeah. He would get mobbed everywhere. So I think, uh, I think that was as a whole project thing, it was the most amazing because I would go, I would shoot pieces and I go there and present them. And then it's always dealing with a lot of nervousness and crowds. So it's like, it's the most exciting of all the things that I've done is be on his show, like for a few years and do stuff. Uh, you talk a lot about, um, you know, calling people on their BS, but then that like, I'm available for commercials or (laughs) something like that. So I'm just wondering on the record, is there anything you would be excited to sell out for? I think, yeah, you know, not excited, but I I think I would like to be like what Jim Belushi is doing, but funnier than him. (laughs) He's selling pot now. Yeah. I would like to be the spokesperson for some kind of pot collecting. Cause I feel I've done so much personal research on my own. Right. And uh, I get this image of like, you make money and you have free pot for, and I know that I can buy pot in, in Los Angeles, but I also know that I'm not saying I spend $300 a week, <laughs> but there have been some weeks. So this way I could get a, I could get a little swag and, uh, you know, be the tune in, turn on, drop out person for marijuana. That'd be great. Uh, I have, there, there are comedians now that are, their day job is working in legal dispensaries. <laughs> That's great. And I have a friend who's got like all these things to say about celebrities. Like Willie Nelson really knows what he's talking about. Uh, Snoop Dogg is not really attached to his company. I don't feel like he cares, but apparently... Seth Rogen has started a company and he will be the secret shopper and he will come to stores in Canada and try and hide. But it's so bad because he's got a very distinct voice. Yeah. Yes. I'm a, I'm not Seth Rogen, but but I'm here to, I'd like to try the Rogen, the Seth Rogen life weed. Yeah. He could, uh, it's very hard, but that's exciting because that's a man who I think knows good weed. Right. Uh, is, is there a particular brand of coffee that you would like to? Uh... Oh, yeah, that's a good thing. Well, well, there's a couple of things. Now, there's a, uh, I do love Rob Beans. Rob Beans, Rob makes the coffee in his garage. Oh, okay. And he roasts it in his garage, and it's excellent coffee. But I wouldn't want to, yeah, it could be coffee. I would be like, I love a, a four barrel coffee. I love, there's so much coffee. There's so much great coffee now. So what I'm saying to you coffee people, make me an offer. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Do you want to take, do you want to take your coffee to the next level? Thank, thank you for doing this and, and, and staying so long. And This was really a pleasure. I'm so glad. I'm glad you're doing well too. That makes me happy. Oh yeah, no, it's, it's, it's great. Uh, this is the one awkward part of the interview for the recording side of it to go through. You have to hang up on me. Oh, so yeah. If you ever have any fantasy of like telling someone off or you'll never work in this town again, go, this is the perfect time for it. Well, I'd like to get, I would like to actually hang up as you're starting to tell me about uh, one of your, like something that you're talking about in therapy. 
you. So like you may <laughs> say something to me like, Andy, I got to talk to you. Something like that. Andy, I really have to say something important to you. I, Andy, I, I just need to get something off my chest. What's wrong? You know, as a child, my parents never like told me I ever did anything well. Okay. Okay. You know, that's, they'll probably call back. It's fine. Mm-hmm.